What use, after all, is man if not to teach God his lessons? <laughs> I mean, if you're not looking for some, <laughs> for some something to come down the pike after you say things like that. And welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you all for tuning in or downloading or whatever way you found this podcast. We have a great script for you today that we're going to jump into just as quick as can be. This is a very popular script, one that was done frequently at the end of uh, the kind of late 1900s, <laughs> the 1980s through the uh, early 2000s, and we're going to be jumping into, I think, the first time we've ever done a Peter Schaefer script, yeah? That is right, yes. We are coming to Peter Schaefer, a really spectacular playwright, one that I'm excited to continue to do more of his scripts going forward, but I have a special affection for the script that we are doing today, which is Amadeus. Yeah, Amadeus. I've, uh, probably many of you uh, have interacted with the film, but certainly this play was produced and is produced often and frequently. That's right, including at my high school. Now, I know it's a high school production, but I had a very robust uh, uh, high school theater program, and so we were able to do Amadeus, and I was able to play Salieri, and it was just the honor of my high school career. It's an incredible play, really an incredible part. And I was so delighted to get to play it. And as I was reading it again, I was remembering some of what we did, some of what I learned, some of the choices that our production made and different choices I'd make now. And it's just, just so, so great. We're excited to talk about it. Before we jump in, though, we do want to ask everybody listening, please go on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Again, the domain name, which is where you're going to want to try to find us, patreon.com slash podcast. There you can become a supporter of the show for as little as one dollar a month again just one dollar a month you can support the work that we're doing here it's a labor of love but it's not free and we need your help patreon.com slash no script podcast we'll see you over there Yes, thank you to everyone who has checked us out over on patreon.com and we'll see you over there patreon.com slash no script podcast Jumping right in now to some of the uh, context uh, of this show, I've already mentioned some of its acclaim. Uh, it was produced for the first time at the Royal National Theatre in London in 1979. Uh, Schaefer wrote it for uh, that playhouse over there, and uh, he kind of wrote it based on another short uh, play that he had seen called Mozart and Salieri, uh, written by Alexander Pushkin. And uh, But then he then went and kind of expounded on this relationship between the two composers. That production starred Sir Peter Hall, uh, Paul Schofield, Simon Callow, Felicity Kendall. 
And uh, that production ran for a while, and then it premiered on Broadway in December of 1980 with uh, some more familiar names, such as Ian McKellen as Salieri and Tim Curry as Mozart, Jane Seymour as Constance. And uh, that production ran for a good long time. Other people subbed in for those roles. Ian McKellen was eventually replaced by folks like John Wood, uh, David Dukes, David Briney, and uh, Tim Curry was replaced by Peter Firth, Peter Crook, and uh, notably Mark Hamill had his turn at uh, Mozart. So, and, and then it continues, right? Like, we take a little bit of a break for a little while. It was revived in 1999, um, uh, had a whole bunch of Tony nominations. Michael Sheen played Mozart in that version. And uh, later on, Neil Patrick Harris played Mozart in another production. Rupert Everett played Salieri in a Chichester Festival Theater version of it. So this play has made its rounds. It's kind of one of those, uh, in in that era of kind of the, the 80s, 90s, and the early knots, this play was kind of a proving ground in some ways for a lot of actors. That's right, yeah. There, there are plays that exist like that where you kind of do the rotation as you grow up as a young actor. Lots of different parts. We've actually looked at some of those in, in previous scripts, but... The Salieri Mozart characters in this play is such a strong duo of characters. Other duos exist. We talked about True West before. That's another really powerful, iconic duo of characters. And in terms of what goes on in the story, it's a lot of what Jackson mentioned, this kind of dueling composers relationship. The play is very, 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 very loosely based on the true lives <laughs> of Salieri and Mozart, but it it really what it is is a fictionalization an imagination of what it would be like if Salieri was infinitely jealous of Mozart and that caused his decline in some ways this is a play about moral decline in some ways it's a play about um what happens when you realize you're not as talented as you want to be basically what occurs is that Salieri is a composer for the royal court in Germany Mozart arrives to this place to seek work, to uh, initially he wants to write a comic opera, things like that. And Mozart arrives and just blows away what Salieri can do musically. And this causes Salieri a lot of jealousy because as he says early in the play, when he was young, Salieri, in this play at least, claims to have made this bargain with God where he said, I'm going to be a faithful servant. I'm going to live in an upright way. I'm going to do all these things. And in return, all I want is the ability to write beautiful music. And until this point in his life, he thinks that bargain has paid off. People love his music. He's been very successful. He's a, high, a prominent composer for the court. When Mozart arrives and Salieri begins to hear Mozart's music, he realizes that he's missing something. He doesn't have this sort of divine gift that he imagines that Mozart has. This causes him to spiral. And throughout the course of the play, in one of the major moments, he decides that he's no longer going to serve God because he, he seems to not be able to have the gifts of music that Mozart has. Mozart in the play is portrayed as this sort of horrible, impish child, the, you know, uh, immature, 
unwilling to participate in the the niceties of society. You know, the first time you see him, he's like chasing this girl around at this party playing this really infantile game and he's crass. He's a, he he spends money in a, in wildly extravagant ways. He we're fairly confident cheats on his wife multiple multiple times. And Salieri but he has this gift of music. Salieri's not done any of that and doesn't seem to have this gift of music that Mozart has. So in the crucial moment of the play, Salieri decides to fight back against God for not rewarding him his side of the bargain and through the course of the play, tries to kind of undo Mozart in the eyes of the court. It's all framed in this meta narrative of the old man Salieri telling everyone that he murdered Mozart. And this is how. Yeah, kind of a, an offstage narration almost from Solieri uh, throughout the play that he frequently breaks into his sides and speaks out over the audience. Um, I, I, one, of the, one of the really fascinating things about this play is that it, it, it deals with uh, this inferiority complex that Solieri has around Mozart and in the present time of the play, which is uh, uh, late 19th century, I believe, um, the rest of the the uh, city of Vienna does not see that Mozart is awesome. Uh, <laughs> Solieri seems to be the only one who sees the brilliance of Mozart, at least in t- to, to some extent. But we as the audience are sitting in the position of knowing that Mozart's music has lasted through now multiple centuries. And so so there's this weird dynamic at play where uh, Solieri, despite all the voices around him saying uh, occasionally that this this opera that uh, that Mozart is putting together is a, a bit too much. Solieri is just like bathed in it. Right. This 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 crazy music. And he sees himself as inferior. And we as the audience have this perspective of knowing that he is. Right, and that perspective is actually built into the play. In in the initial scene, Salieri conjures the ghosts of the future, basically, which is us. He, like, calls upon the future generation's ghosts, which is odd because ghosts is usually associated with people who are dead. But in this case, he's calling on, you know, us who live in this year to look back on him at this time with our historical vision, knowing what's what Mozart's music was to become. And really, that is ultimately Salieri's goal, right? Through the, the at least old man Salieri, through the course of the script, we learn that he is describing how he quote unquote murdered Mozart in an effort to associate his name for generations to come with Mozart's name. Right. To like piggyback on the fame. I, I love that opening. That and, and he even justifies it with his, uh, you know, his own musical subservience to opera and saying how opera calls forth people to remember something. And, and there's, it's this really cool moment. This play is filled with great stage directions, which I'm sure we'll talk about extensively eventually. But, uh, the stage directions kind of at that point, ask the production team to bring up the house lights so that it feels like all of a sudden you are, you are summoned by Solieri at the beginning of the play. That's right. And Salieri then acts as our guide and interpreter 
through the course of the play. It's his story, and it's his story through his lens. The play is heavy in narration, and even occasionally at times, perhaps the narration is a little bit overbearing, although the script is brilliant in so many ways that it's hard to say, well, if you took away this piece, it would be better, or anything like that. That's wild to even say. But it what really what happens is that the crucial moments of revelation and discovery through the course of the play happen in Salieri's relationship with the audience maybe more often than in scenes. Does that sound fair, Jackson? Yeah, I think so because, I mean, many of the scenes, he's he's almost an observer with us in a lot of the scenes. Uh, with the exception of later on in the play, he becomes more actively involved in some of the things. But a lot of what happens in the play happens around Salieri and he's like blown away by things sometimes or like, you know, stewing over things sometimes. And then we get his account of them and what he plans to do about it after the fact. Right. And even even in the scenes themselves, there's asides that kind of break up the action, right? In the um, There's a scene later in the play after Mozart has decided to fight, or I'm sorry, after Salieri has decided to fight back against God through Mozart, basically, where he's trying to impoverish Mozart to the point of starvation, I guess. And uh, he, he he's, he's doing pretty well because he has such a high position at the court that he's able to kind of control what jobs Mozart gets and doesn't get. But the, Mozart has been sort of linked with the Masons, and he's been asking the Masons for money. And Salieri realizes as his little, uh, his venticello, his venticelli or whatever you'd call them, as they're describing what's happening to him, he turns to the audience and says, I had forgotten about the Masons. They're going to keep him alive. And then he immediately turns back to talking with those characters. So it, it's it, there's a lot of interplay in what Salieri is turning to tell the audience versus when he's actually inside of a scene. And speaking of interplay between uh, people kind of jumping in and out and setting things up, you just mentioned the Venticelli. Um, and the Venticelli are like, I'm, I think we're saying that, right? Uh, we're going to, this is a, a lot of this play. Some of this play is just straight up in Italian. Like <laughs> there are yeah. just lines that are in Italian. So <laughs> we're, we, we, this is, this is our apology at the beginning that we will most likely mess up a couple names. Um, but uh, yeah, the, there's Venticello one and Venticello two, and these two characters are um, are Solieri's um, well, he whisper. Calls them his little birds. Yeah, <laughs> kind of Game of Thronesy for those of you who like Game of Thrones, and that's exactly what they are. These people bring him information in the city because he says it is always wise to know what's going to happen to you before it happens when you live in a big city, and. Um, but they serve a couple uh, extra purposes as well, yeah, Jacob. In addition to just being Solieri's ears on the streets, what 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 else do they serve as? Right. They also spread gossip. He 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 intentionally infuses them with information to bring out into the public a lot. They're like little spies or little converts. And then and then structurally inside of the play, they provide a lot of the exposition in a way that seems a little bit separated from Salieri's narration. 
right? There's so much of Salieri narrating that occasionally the Venticelli come out and provide some of that as a way to see Salieri react to the news, right? Because there's a difference between when Salieri is telling us the news, he'll say, it's 18-whatever, and I'm this many years old, and there's Mozart, and there's this emperor, and in that way, he's the guide. But when the Venticelli come to provide the information, he's a character in a scene, and we get to see him react to news, which really is a fairly rare thing in the play, given how um, just how much narration exists through the play. Yeah, there's 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 a, a number of scenes where it's I think it's vital to see those reactions because the 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 uh, Venticello kind of end up. Uh, getting to say some things that are hurtful to Solieri to his face because they're just passing on news. Um, and, and most of it is around Mozart's initial fame. Uh, Mozart kind of crashes into Vienna, uh, which is a, a very artful city in general. The emperor at the time is, uh, oh, I'm spacing on the full name, but he's referred to in the script as Joseph. So I'm going to call him Emperor Joseph. Um, but uh, he is a uh, Joseph II. There it is. He is uh, a very artistic uh, emperor, and thus he is drawing all sorts of artistic types to him. And Mozart has traveled around Europe with his father, Leopold Mozart. And uh, he's he's coming to Vienna to kind of crash land into the scene. The first thing he gets is an opera to be the, the emperor hires him to write an opera in German. Whew. There's so many, so many big words in there, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so starting with, starting from there, uh, Solieri gets these reports from all over the region as Mozart is on his way and he has people paying attention and we get to kind of be a part of those events, though they don't happen on stage, which definitely broadens the world for us and for Solieri. Right. And the Venticelli then, they come in, they come out real fluidly. Sometimes they act as messengers right in the scene itself. Sometimes they act more as second and third narrators. But they are almost the only characters that serve that function. Salieri and the Venticelli, to some degree, the Venticelli do it. Other than that, Salieri is really the only character that exists outside of time in this way. He has a cook and he has a caretaker that are with him when he is old and then are also with him when he's the young Salieri. But they don't, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not involved in the action of explaining anything. They're just, they just happen to be characters that exist in both times. Salieri separates himself from the flow of time and there's this odd you know, he he's an old, old man when he starts the narration at the beginning. And then the stage directions call for when the storytelling gets underway, he basically, he does sort of a costume change on stage and becomes a young man. And the young man guides us through much of the rest of the play, other than those brief scenes where we go back to being old. Yeah, this play is ambitious in its technical abilities. Um, <laughs> Jacob just kind of uh, casually just said that he changes into a younger man on stage. <laughs> and it's it's pretty close to that. You have to construct some sort of uh, affair of time travel to mask the fact that you are removing age makeup. Or perhaps it's just a shawl and the actor is just playing old. But, but... 
there's 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 plenty of uh, of spectacle in this show and uh, interesting theatricality to to be added to some of this in and out time travel business. Right. Yeah. It you know it's almost reminiscent of something like Man of La Mancha, where the meta context is that someone is setting up to tell a story with a specific goal in mind, and then that person moves on to exist within the story. Separate from but related to the goal that the meta narrator had. Right. So so what are some of the some of the other characters that float around? Let's introduce some of the, the other oddities of, of characters that are basically just there for Solieri to manipulate into destroying Mozart in some ways. But there's a couple that stand out. Who who have we got around these two? Right. There are some other really important characters, but I do think that you're right, that the 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 sense is the the play is Salieri and Mozart. And and there are other characters that that orbit them, basically. And insert themselves at very specific points. One of those people, the more obvious person probably, is Constance Weber. This is Mozart's wife. She is an incredible woman in a lot of ways and really takes care of Mozart, is with him through their poverty, believes he's a musical genius, and somehow puts up with the fact that everybody and their mother knows that Mozart is having an affair with virtually every female student he gets. Right. And 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 kind of bears up under what is what ends up being quite a weird relationship with Solieri and uh, with uh, but, but th- that Mozart kind of encourages her into at one point. If I read the play correctly, she engages in some machinations with Mozart and Solieri, and uh, yeah, yeah. So th- so there's there's Constance who I'm sure we'll we'll get back to. Um, there's, well, she there's the- has she just has a. a- brilliant segment of this plot through the middle of the play. And if you'll permit me, I'm going to try to describe it a little bit and we'll go back and forth because it's just amazing. So Mozart is the, Salieri has a student named Caterina Cavalieri. Again, I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, and, and, and Salieri it lusts after this student. He admits that from the beginning of the play. But through the first half of the play, as he's living as a good man or trying to, he's kept his vows of chastity to his wife. He's tried his best not to lust after a student. He's, you know, in his eyes, he's been a perfect gentleman. And then Mozart casts Katerina in his opera and Salieri becomes immediately aware that, that Mozart must have slept with her. And that causes him just an enormous amount of jealousy. And this is the half of the play before he commits to fighting against God. So Salieri is mostly just upset with Mozart, jealous for a lot of reasons, the musical talent, uh, the fact that Mozart is not anything near the kind of good person that Salieri believes himself to be. So Salieri, in his anger, decides he he is going to break his vows of chastity and his commitment to his wife, and he is going to seduce or blackmail Mozart's wife Constance into sleeping with him. So he invites Constance over, and what's the blackmail, Jackson? Well, yeah, the blackmail is Constance uh, kind of confides in him that Mozart needs a job, and uh, and he knows this already. There's a job open to uh, tutor the princess, I believe it's Princess Elizabeth, uh, who is a princess in Vienna, and uh, Solieri, as uh, the court... Uh, court music guy, um, <laughs> has the power to uh, appoint or or whisper into the king's ear, at least, who should be that tutor. And uh, so he, the blackmail is, uh, if you will 
sleep with me or uh, starts with kiss me, but eventually gets to sleep with me, I will help Mozart be appointed to that tutor position. There's a, a just a, a devastatingly cruel line there. She, she brings to Salieri a bunch of Mozart's music that, that hasn't been published yet in an effort to try to secure the position. She believes she's just there to convince Salieri to help Mozart get the position. Salieri, of course, as Jackson just described, has ulterior motives. And Salieri says, leave the music. I'll go through it. And then he says something to the effect of, but make no mistake. Think, or he says like, you know, think about what we talked about, the fact that if you sleep with me, I'll get him the job. And he says, but make no mistake, that is the price. I mean, just upfront and devious and cruel. You sleep with me, I'll get Mozart the job. You don't, I won't. The music is just for me. And he sits and he listens to music and the, the getting all of this music and discovering how good it is is what then causes him to say, uh, you know, I've been chased, I've been good, I've been humble, I take care of the poor, all this stuff. You haven't given me the same level of musical genius you've given Mozart. So God, I'm going to fight against you. I'm going to destroy Mozart only as an effort to destroy you, God. And that's the end of Act 1. Act 2 begins and Constance comes back and says, okay, I'll, I agree. Let's do it. And Salieri, unbeknownst to her, has gone through this incredible emotional moment where he's decided he's no longer fighting against Mozart just because he hates him, but ultimately he's fighting against God. And Salieri basically says, I don't want to anymore. I've decided yeah. that uh, I'm not, I don't want to just sleep with you just to get back at Mozart. I have bigger plans than that. And it's, oh, what a slap in the face. I mean, and she gets angry. The stage directions call for her to like kind of attack Salieri. And you can see why. I mean, it's, it's it seems cruel. And only as the audience having walked through Salieri's emotional journey, we understand why he changed his mind. It's still right. cruel. But to her, the, the it seems as if the ploy was just to get her to agree to sleep with him and then shun her. It seems just the ultimate cruelty. And, th and then he kind of like doubles down on the theme too, because the next the next scene then is he says, so after she left, I had Katerina over for more lessons and seduced her and made her my mistress. So <laughs> the theme continues then uh, as after that 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 kind of pivotal moment where um, he's he's kind of like embarrassed in some way in in the scene before where he's trying to seduce Katerina, she says no, and then kind of makes fun of him for his like pretty bad wooing that he tried to do. And, uh, and, and that is part of the cue into this, this revelation after he looks over the music and he's just completely, uh, over, overborne by the, the, the almost like celestial quality of Mozart's written music. It's this, it's this amazing theatrical scene where he's just reading the music, but we, as the audience hear, the music of Mozart just kind of building over and over multiple different uh, arias and themes are beginning to build and, and it just sends him to the ground and he passes out from like sheer holy experience. Yeah, that's one of the major images that is used and misused in, in intentionally misused. You know, it's it's handled in a lot of different ways, but one of these core images is the idea of God speaking through Mozart, through Mozart's music. And Salieri's gripe is, why aren't you speaking through me? 
I want you to speak through me. I'm the kind of person you want to speak through, in theory. Why are you speaking through Mozart, this child, this crass, crass human, this adulterer, this, uh, you know, greedy person who doesn't even handle the money that he gets very well? Why is your voice speaking through this music and not mine? And, And there's some quality that Salieri is able to identify in Mozart's music that makes it better than Salieri's own music. As you mentioned, the people around Mozart at the time don't seem to get it, or at least the high court folks that Salieri interacts with. The Emperor Joseph character has a, a, a great, he, he's a very, very funny character. He has a couple things that he says over and over <laughs> that are very comic. One of them is too many notes. It's a way to sort of say that he didn't understand the music and he didn't think it was very good. It was too complicated. So anytime he listens to music that he just doesn't quite get, he'll say, hey, you know what? It was too many notes. Too many notes. And that's what he says about Mozart's music a lot is too many notes. Yeah. Something like the humans can only process so many notes within a a given amount of time. And you definitely exceeded that. (laughs) I think that is the, the, that is the like, the crux for me, the really cool struggle for this. I mean, it's, it's cool to watch, you know, in a house of cards way, it's cool to watch someone go about bringing about other people's destruction for their own gain and then having consequences placed on them. But the way that that turns in there, the turn from, I want to bring about Mozart's destruction to how dare God give Mozart this ability to make what I cannot make after I have devoted myself to God and now I'm fighting God. And he gets very, um, um, proud, um, uh, hubraic. I think I'm going to go to in his, uh, uh, his, uh, his thoughts on how he can fight God and what, uh, humans purpose is with God to, I think at one part he says to show God his faults, Right, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just going to go ahead and read a couple cuttings of this major monologue at the end of Act 1. Yeah. Fun fact, this is the monologue I used to audition for my college theater programs, all hey. the ones that I did. So I do remember, but this is just a, a little taste of it. So this is after he's read this music, he's discovered that God has been speaking through Mozart. Through the first act, he's been unsure. He, some of Mozart's music is, was really good. Some of it wasn't, so he couldn't really tell if it was just an, by accident that Mozart was accessing this kind of divine level of creation. Uh, but now he's got all these manuscripts, and he's reading them, and he discovers they're all genius. God is speaking through all of them. So he, this is just excerpts. That's not really from the beginning of the monologue, but he says things like this. You gave me the desire to serve you, which most men do not have, then saw to it that the service was shameful in the ears of the server. You gave me the desire to praise you, which most do not feel, and then made me mute. He goes on like that, describing the the, the way that God has gifted Mozart, but not him, even though he wants to serve him. And then the line that Jackson is talking about, he says, um, they say, God is not mocked. I'll say, man is not mocked. You are the enemy. I name thee uh, Nemico Eterno, and this I swear to my last breath, I shall block you on this earth as far as I am able. What use, after all, is man if not to teach God his lessons? (laughs) I mean, if you're not looking for some... (laughs) 
for some something to come down the pike after you say things like that. <laughs> something dramatic is going to happen to you, whether it's good or ill. Well, you're right. And of course, that's what Salieri frets about much of the second act. Much of the second act is him wondering, when is the smiting going to come? <laughs> when is the lightning going to hit me for saying what I said, for doing the things that I am doing? I'm no longer living in an upright way like I was before. Now I'm living in a way that it will help me to block you. Like there's this awesome scenic change where Salieri, who, who lives in this kind of humble, cheap, simple apartment, simple furniture, he's trying to save his money well. He gives a lot of his money away to poorer musicians. And then in the middle of act two, he decides he's not going to do any of that anymore because it's not helping him so he buys like gold everything gold chairs (laughs) gold wallpaper his whole apartment turns to gold and in the middle of the scene change he takes off this black or brown coat that the script is calling for him to be wearing and puts on this elegant gold coat which he wears through the end of the script yeah and and like things keep happening that are better and better for him as he does these things, right? Like he eventually this position that has been filled by this incredibly old man that he says just won't die, this position that he sought after opens up and he's named the uh, uh, the first uh, high musical rank in, in Vienna. Yeah, it's you know, <laughs> um, nonsense words <laughs> that mean high musical not person. Nonsense words. Not nonsense, like, that's not what I mean. I just mean uh, unmemorable. I, I don't remember what they are. <laughs> So, of course, they're nonsense if I don't remember them. That's not what I meant. No. Um, but you're no. right. So, if that happens, he talks about how, well, now all of my operas are becoming really popular. My music is suddenly the thing. I'm wealthy beyond all means now because of how popular my music is, and everybody hates Mozart's music. So, all of this success is happening, it's seemingly to Salieri, as a result of his turning against God, finally. Right. And, and but but still underneath that, he still talks about his curse that is before even the end of the play where we see the true ramifications of his curse. Even in the middle of all this success, he acknowledges that his curse is to know, even in the midst of all this fame and success and acclaim, that Mozart's music is better than his. And he still can't find the secret sauce that enables him to write this music. There's a wonderful, wonderful moment early in the play. Just as Mozart is arriving to court for the first time, Salieri has written a little march uh, to honor the fact that Mozart is arriving at court. So as Mozart is coming in, he's playing the march, and and the meeting with the emperor between Mozart kind of goes okay. At the end, Salieri and, and Mozart are left alone on stage, and Mozart says, oh, there, you know, that was a fun little thing you played earlier. How did it go? And Salieri's like, well, no, 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 you keep the sheet music. It's yours. Here. And Mozart says, oh, thanks. And he tosses the sheet music away, plays the (laughs) march for memory, and then improves upon it. And it becomes one of the famous, beautiful, amazing, classic marches from one of his operas. And he's changed Salieri's sort of pitiful attempt at music into one of the great enduring works of Mozart. They're on the spot. And in fact, the stage directions call for the uh, the moment to kind of show what a what a virtuoso Mozart really is on the piano. Yeah, he like modulates it and and moves between themes and imp- improves on it. He will like 
repeatedly hit i think he says something like the fourth stanza or something is wrong and he, he like asks Solieri, oh oh that that's wrong isn't it um what if what if it was this and <laughs> And he's like, yes, that's better, right? And he's like thinking like he's helping workshop this with Solieri. One of the things, and and I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, Mozart seems to be written in this play as this kind of like just this spirit who like wanders in and doesn't know he's causing offense to people. And in this scene, it, it rotates around that theme. He seems to be genuinely excited at the prospect of improving on this thing. Right. What, what do you I, think? I think you're exactly right. And that's what makes, especially early in the play, before you really get to know Mozart, it makes the scene so, I don't know, it almost feels like more of a spear into Salieri, given that Mozart is not even trying to cause offense. He's having right. fun. And in fact, as soon as he's done, he says, why don't you try a variation now? I mean, this <laughs> is just what Mozart does in his writing of the play. He takes music and he makes it perfect. And Salieri is just does not have that gift. And so when Mozart says, why don't you try a variation? Salieri's forced to say something like, well, I gotta, I'm busy. I got to go. I got to go talk to the emperor or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think, I don't think Mozart is above reproach in this play. He spends other times making fun of different people. There is a kind of a famous, uh, a number of famous scenes where, uh, uh, Solieri is like sitting in a high-backed chair and overhears many things in the in in the room that Mozart is in without Mozart knowing that he's there. I think in the movie they accomplish that with a like a mask ball, but in the in the play it's all accomplished with him like facing forward so we get to see Solieri's expressions as he overhears Mozart uh, complaining loudly about just about everyone including Solieri. Right, and Mozart is caught doing something like that a number of times through the play, saying the wrong thing, not controlling his tongue. He knows what people want to hear usually. And really, as you mentioned earlier, Jackson, and maybe even as an answer or a a disagreement, Mozart, I, I, I think when it comes to music, Mozart legitimately does not understand when he's causing offense and when he's not. He speaks such a high level of music, such this, you know, the touch of genius, the touch of God in him, that he exists on a different plane when he talks about music uh, as other people. But when he talks about other things, I think he knows what he's supposed to say and what he's not supposed to say and chooses (laughs) to be crass because he thinks it's funny or because he can't handle the tension of, of holding up in polite society. One of the things that influences Mozart a lot in this telling is the fact that his father took him around, as you mentioned earlier, to all these different concerts throughout Europe, you know, when he was a young virtuoso. And so he was sort of forced into these high pressure, high society situations. And you can kind of see the cracks that that's caused in his ability to handle these situations as an adult. So he ends up like, even after a conversation has gone really well and he's kind of getting what he wants, he'll just end up like making fart noises at the end of the conversation a number of times. Yeah, yeah. And I don't don't think it's because he's ignorant of the fact that he shouldn't do that. I think he just maybe can't quite handle it. Yeah, it seems to be, he seems to be that way. He like, uh, even, even to the point that he will... When he's describing his ideas, he, he he believes that a lot of his ideas are inspired. 
but he kind of his his first pitch um, of of him wanting to do this uh, opera in a brothel, he he can barely get it out. He's like. Uh, 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 he's defraying the subject off to the side of like trying, he's trying to like talk to talk, talk, talk it down a little bit so that people will, will let him do the play, but he doesn't, he's not afraid to push those boundaries, but the way he pushes the boundaries ends up being this, um, this display of childishness that eventually <laughs> I think is, is one of the big things that drives him away from the powerful people who maybe could have helped him out of, uh, Solieri's machinations. Right. I want to return to that wing-backed chair that you mentioned. Yeah, there are yeah. a number of these kinds of odd coincidences that exist through the course of the Mozart Salieri story that craft this picture of, as Salieri understands it, kind of God's providence in how things are working out, right? The fact that three or four times Salieri happens to be in the same chair, in the same study, a study that's not his, he's at a party, three different times, hidden in this sort of back corner chair where no one can really see him, eating this same dessert, and three times something crucial happens that he happens to overhear. That yeah. kind of builds the case, and it's not a case that he makes so much in the text, but it's a case he makes in the storytelling that what has happened around him is not just the coincidence of Mozart being better than him, but a, a campaign of God against him. That, And it's not just that, I mean, Salieri's decision to campaign against God is based on his belief that God is campaigning against him, setting right. him up to fail despite all of the things that he has done to serve him. Right. That that seems to be almost like this this tragic nature of of uh, Solieri is that I mean <laughs> that he doesn't know he doesn't realize that he could have been the person who discovered Mozart. <laughs> like he doesn't he do, he 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 is so convinced that God is against him that he doesn't see the possibility of of what it could have been if he had actually befriended Mozart in the end. You've, it's, you've it's mentioned the, the crucial word, I think. Tragic. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. believe that this is a tragedy, old school, pure and simple. And here's what I think the tragic flaw is. Salieri's desire for fame. He says it from the beginning of the script to the end. He wants to be famous. He's always wanted to be famous since he was a child. And that desire for fame is what causes him to miss out on exactly what you mentioned. He's discovered genius. And only he knows it. Right? Nobody around him recognizes Mozart's genius except him. So he could have been the guy that discovered Mozart. Brought God's voice through music into the world. If he was really after accessing that voice of God in music, he found it. He found Mozart. Right. But that's not what he's after. He wants right. it to be him. He wants the fame. And that causes – not, not only – it doesn't really cause his downfall in the short term, right? Because in the story within the story – he has a lot of success. He overbears, overwhelms, and ultimately destroys Mozart. He wins. But yeah, in the long term, it 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 he's not remembered. We don't. I, I if not for this play, I would have never come across the name Solieri. I don't think. <laughs> right. I mean, he's this. He's 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 lost to history. Even though he had everything in the present, what he was searching for, posterity perhaps is is not is not his. 
and his desire for fame or for self-aggrandizement or for uh, the idea that he has to be the instrument, however you identify what the specific flaw in his character is, that's what ultimately causes his demise. And his demise at the end of the play is very Greek, is it not? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. talk about your Greek tragic pictures. The guy cuts his own throat on stage. I mean, you know, eyes plucked out, carrying your dead son out into the audience. He has a physical, <laughs> painful, dastardly, evil, just horrifying result of his tragic flaw and the impacts that it has had on his life. And he still has to live with it. He doesn't die from being cut in the throat. He's still alive. He didn't do it well enough. And he lives another couple years seeing that people, despite all of his efforts to try to attach himself to the name as the guy who killed Mozart, no one believes him. Right, and, and even and that is actually a part of this problem, right? Because he's retired, rich, and old. But his desire for fame, as he recognizes, this is old man Salieri now in, in the meta-narrative, rich and old, and he recognizes that he is going to fade into the dust of history. Mozart's music is going to be remembered, and his is not. He knows it because he's, he knows music. So he knows what's going to happen, or at least he predicts it. And so he says, well, how can I get famous? How can I not just retire rich and old and know that Mozart's music, God's voice is going to live on in the world? How can I get famous? Well, I'm going to make it known that I murdered Mozart. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to kill myself. And by killing myself, I'm going to cement my guilt in the minds of the people. And I'm going to forever be associated with Mozart. It's that fame, that desire for self-aggrandizement. And that ultimately leads to his real punishment, which is that the suicide fails. He fails at killing himself as he's failed in everything in his life. And he ends up, people think he's crazy rather than the, he, they think that it's a delusion that he killed Mozart. Yeah, it's just the 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 kind of, ultimate adding on of punishment at the end because you get to that point in the play and you're you're feeling the punishment right it's like okay we we we, we see how this is ending right like we're, we we get it you you are living a sad life and oh shoot okay you're, you're all the way to the point that you're like giving us your death note and going to kill yourself and 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 he does he kills himself on stage in front of us the 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 stage directions call for him to fall to the stage presumably dead and then it keeps going <laughs> and you just get this like oh, gut punch as you realize that the punishment is not over yet that's right and and it's interesting if you go back to the very beginning of the play after as he's narrating what his childhood was like this is what he says this is two separate quotes but it illustrates i think this this difference between what he truly desires with this supposed bargain that he makes with God. So this is what he says. He says, I wanted fame, not to deceive you. I wanted to blaze like a comet across the firmament of Europe, yet in only one especial way, music. And later on, so that's what he says he wanted. Then later on, this is the bargain he makes with God. He says, God or Signore, let me be a composer. Grant me sufficient fame to enjoy it. In return, I will live with virtue. I will strive to better the lot of my fellows, and I will honor you with music all the days of my life. So he feels like he, God has violated this bargain that he made, but the bargain isn't let me be the most famous composer ever. Let me be a composer. Grant me sufficient fame to enjoy it. If I were God's lawyer, I would say, you know what? 
I think he did that. You right. were a composer, and you had sufficient fame to enjoy your composer. You were rich and famous in your area as long as you lived. And in return, you were supposed to be virtuous. And right. That, that, that seems, seems like it happened, man. But yeah. you wanted more. You wanted to be famous. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Mozart came around and was going to be more famous than you, that burned him. That burned him, and it ruined his life. Yeah. And, 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 and then he like buys into it too. If, I mean, if this was another play, it's almost like Faust. Like (laughs) he does everything but sign a contract on his way down. (laughs) He just like beat by beat. He, he like pulls apart Mozart's life. Uh, all through act two, he just like rips out his support systems, make sure he can't get a job, make sure that when he gets a job, it's for way less money than he's worth. And he knows it. It's way it's worth way less money than it was worth for the guy before. And the guy before was not a genius. And he he removes the support system of the societies that he's a part of. He forces him just downtrodden enough. But then there's he goes like one step further by the end of the play this the, and and from it we get this iconic image from the play yeah right yeah you're talking about the fact that mozart holds in his heart a deep fear of his father we've talked a little bit about that and he discovers that his father dies and through sometime during the course of the play and around the time his father dies he also is visited by this tall masked cloaked figure who was trying to get a basically shows up and says, don't tell anyone, write me a requiem and I'll pay you very well. And then he disappears and it terrifies Mozart in his psychotic, drunken, starving, falling apart self. And then Salieri appears outside of Mozart's apartment, kind of stalking him, dressed in this sort of dark garb. And that terrifies Mozart. And finally, Salieri goes into the apartment and in one of the heartbreaking scenes of the play, realizes that I think he realizes the wrongness of what he's done. Yeah. And then almost like doubles down on it. <laughs> like in, in what, what is must just be a, a, an incredible scene to play. And maybe you can speak into it. He just like tells Mozart to die <laughs> as, as he's standing over him. He takes off. He, he, he came there in costume in this dark garb with a mask and a hat and he goes upstairs and he's talking to him about finishing up this requiem. Mozart is like begging him to be like, I- I'm sorry, I need one more month. I can't write as well as I used to because I'm dying of various uh, problems. And 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 so Solieri removes his mask and just says, it was me all along. You just need to die now. Well, no, I'm not sure I agree. I think you're missing one of the crucial beats. And this is another beat that comes in relationship to music. Mozart shows Salieri the music, the sheet music for the Requiem that he's writing, which eventually becomes Kyrie and, and, you know, Mozart's famous Requiem. And Salieri reads it and again has one of those supernatural divine moments that he has often with Mozart's music. And in this one, the Requiem, he says, he says, I stood there, his despairing mass sounding over and over in my head in its gigantic lamentation and knew absolutely who it was for. The boy, the eager boy who stumbled around the fields of Lombardy, he's talking about himself. In 10 years of unrelenting spite, I had destroyed myself. 
And in that realization, this musical divine revelation realization that he has, he decides he needs to confess and try to get uh, absolution from Mozart. Please, Mozart, let me tell you all the things that I've done. And he has this sort of monologue where he says, this is what I've done to you. I'm sorry. It's because of my jealousy. It's, It's all this stuff that I've done. I've been terrible to you. And in another sort of heartbreaking moment, Mozart won't believe him. He's too wild with uh, alcohol and fever and death that he can't really understand what Salieri's saying and what Salieri's saying is distressing him. So as usual, he's having a hard time coping and he won't believe him. He won't listen to him. And so that moment where Salieri seeks absolution is is failed as well. It's lost to him as well. That that is like a really heart wrenching part of it. I guess the the the, the seeking for absolution all the way to the end and and yeah even that is ripped away from him like just just every every beat along the way Solieri gets a bad ride out of what he chose it's well, Very yeah, unfortunate and, and for him. because we follow so closely Salieri's journey, he's our narrator, he's our protagonist, you kind of get his point, his feeling that God is working against him. Everything that he truly, deeply wants, he seems to be unable to get by virtue of what exactly, what, you know, what faults has he had? He's, you know, tried to do all this different stuff. And then you can, you have the ability to look back at Salieri and say, well, this is what you did. You know, you're not, you're not just this innocent, oh, finally forgive me, Mozart. I'm so sorry for all this stuff I did. It's like, well, you basically drove this man insane. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's a tough one for you. Yeah, and and ripped apart his whole life, and yeah, yeah, I, and and I mean we've we've covered this like in a couple different ways, but still the 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 craziness of he he was in a position to to bring Mozart into uh, the spotlight and 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 was overwhelmed by his own his own desire for fame is is still like one of the big for, for me the huge dramatic themes like the ultimate dam- damning fact of his life was that he had this opportunity and his own desire got in the way. Right, yeah. So as he's he's demanding absolution from Mozart there at the end and Mozart is, is crying and falling apart and won't believe him and is kind of having a you know an episode and crawls under this blanket and starts to sing this stupid, uh, silly sort of gabble thing that he does throughout the play. And Salieri, after he's finally tried and begged and begged and begged him and nothing happens and Mozart's under this blanket, Salieri says to the audience, Reduce the man, reduce the God. Behold my vow fulfilled, the profoundest voice in the world reduced to a nursery tune. (laughs) So I finally left, refused, unheard, of course. Hmm. And yep. so this this intermingling, this interplay between his desire for fame and then when God seems unwilling to give him the same level of genius as Mozart, which is not what he asked for in his bargain. He asked for fame. God gives genius to Mozart and, and Salieri says, you know what? That's what I wanted. And now that <laughs> you're unwilling to give that to me, I'm going to claim my own pride, my own power by trying to be bigger and better and smarter than God. Now, if this was a Greek play, I would say, than the gods. 
But that could be a summary for all of these Greek tragedies, couldn't it, right? The tragic hero tries to be bigger and better and smarter than God, than the gods. And his pride is driven right back in his throat. Yeah, like some facet is always like, I, I have the better reasoning or I can, I can run this city better or I know how to bring about your music. I could have known how to bring about your music into the world better. And ultimately, and it always comes around to their detriment by the end and spectacularly so. It, in, in that sense of cathartic, tragic pain, the end of the play is, I think, a, a moment of pure genius. Salieri has cut his throat, tried to commit suicide in order to cement his fame in history, fails, and he's, he's brought wheel before the audience with this bandage around his throat. Everybody's talking about how he's crazy, and he, we, re, we realize he doesn't ever get to really reflect on this, but we realize that he's failed even in this, and even in this moment could not make happen what he was hoping to make happen. And he says to the audience this famous, famous line, um, mediocrities everywhere. Now and to come, I absolve you. Sort of claims himself as the patron saint of mediocrity. Even in right. his own attempt to, to end his life, he was mediocre. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the All- play. Mediocrities everywhere, now and to come, I absolve you. Amen. <laughs> what a thing to claim for the end of the play. Right? I mean, what hubris <laughs> even at that moment. Even all the way to the end. It's like the, <laughs> the tragic hubris <laughs> has existed and shown its ugly head. Salieri is another Creon, another <laughs> Oedipus. The hubris has brought about his destruction. But unlike those two guys, it doesn't seem like Salieri learned his lesson. Right. Absolutely. There's no wandering off into the wilderness for him. He's just going to the bitter end. Oh, well, I think I think that's about all the time that we have on that light and frothy note. Uh- <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a delightful play, Jackson. You're going to leave it loving, just loving life. Oh. Yeah, and music. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's dark and heavy and cathartic. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Be prepared for it. Deal with it. (laughs) In the the movie, as many of you have probably seen, the the, Salieri is basically in a madhouse after uh, having tried to kill himself and failing. Everybody thinks he's crazy. So they set that part of the play, the movie, in a madhouse. And at the end, he's being wheeled through these hallways of people who have gone crazy and are wandering around. And to all of these people, as he's being wheeled through, he says, Mediocrities everywhere. Now and to come, I absolve you. Amen. Uh. (laughs) One last parting salvo. (laughs) <laughs> well, if, if you all have seen the movie or have been in this play or have interacted with this play at our, or, or if you just, you know, like Mozart's music and want to rail against the guy who killed him, possibly, 
Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at NoScriptPodcast or on Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. And we would love to keep talking about this play with you all out there. It's a great play full of lots of complicated themes, and we didn't even get to half of them in this time. (laughs) But we got to the big ones, I feel like. So if you uh, have any more to add, hit us up on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking to you. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode or any of our other episodes, please share them. Share them with your friends. Share them on your social media. Help us to continue to grow the growing NoScript community. We've been blessed by that. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. A link to a new episode is posted every Monday when the new episode comes out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yes. So find us on all those sites. Tell your friends, tell your families, tell your loved ones, and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No Script. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.